I looked at my boss and remarked, sometimes life stinks. He nodded. We both sat in silence, wondering how we could bring comfort to yet another member of the church diagnosed with a terminal illness. I've only been an assistant minister for three years, but already I've come away from many situations seething with rage and asking God, why do you let people hurt so much? It angers me to see people with whom I've shared laughs and intelligent conversation unable to remember who I am. It angers me to see a disabled child going through life racked with pain and to see exhausted parents trying their best to cope. It angers me to see someone I've joked with lying lifeless in a Marie Curie ward, struggling for every breath. It angers me when I hear that more young people have taken their own lives, and I scream, where is the government money and incentive to really tackle this problem at a grassroots level? Many times I feel like screaming at God, where are you? Why are you allowing this? And if that's how it makes me feel, in a sense, only a third party, how must the people themselves or their families feel? Perhaps some of you are hurting this morning. Perhaps some of you are watching someone you love suffering. Well, I just want to say that if you feel like screaming about the injustice of it all, that's okay. Because that's the way the psalmist who wrote Psalm 6, sees his own sufferings. He doesn't view them in a positive light as an opportunity to grow in the faith or as a necessary corrective from the hand of God. Whatever the nature of his suffering, even if divine displeasure and discipline are involved, the psalmist simply cries out in desperation to God to be delivered from his anguish. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Be merciful to me, for I am faint. Heal me, for my bones are in agony. What's more, whether there's guilt or not, the duration of the suffering doesn't seem fair. And so he cries out, How long, O Lord? How long? Here the psalmist bases his, his cry or his appeal to God on two grounds. And the first is God's loving nature. He says, turn, O Lord, and deliver me because of your unfailing love. It's as if he pleads with God. Surely you must come to my rescue because otherwise you're not being true to your nature. And the second ground of his appeal in this psalm is based on the Hebrew belief, at least at this point in their history, that after death there was little hope of resurrection into new life. The psalmist cries, no one remembers you when he is dead. Who praises you from the grave? The dead, regardless of whether they were judged righteous or wicked, were thought at this time in Israel's history to descend into Sheol, where they took up a gray, dusty, shadowy existence. And in this sad state, they believed there was no possibility of relationship with God, no experience of blessing or punishment, and no hope of eternal life. And so the psalmist plays his trump card here, saying, in effect, God, if you desire to hear the praise of your people, then you'd better keep them alive. 
because after death, there'll be no more singing. The first lesson I think that we can learn from this psalm is this. We need to be honest with God and to tell him frankly about how suffering makes us feel, and particularly when it makes us angry. When we experience deep suffering or have to watch others suffer, it is wholly right for us to become angry at the sheer ugliness, vileness, and seeming injustice of it all. While it is true that God can bring good out of evil and meet us in remarkable ways in the midst of pain, we must be careful that we don't give suffering a status that it doesn't deserve. Pain and suffering are not part of the original plan. The world that we live in is not the world as it should be or as God wants it to be. We and this world are broken and we need God to restore us. That's why it's only natural for us to become angry in the midst of suffering. But it's important that like the psalmist, that during those times, with God's help, that we direct our anger to God so that it doesn't affect our relationships with others. There are times when we need to express our sense of rightness and exasperation at the evil of suffering by crying out to God, where are you, Lord? When are you going to bring all this to an end? Can I encourage you this morning to shout honestly at God about the suffering that makes you mad? And the second lesson that I think we can learn from this psalm is this. We need to be very careful in how we care for those who are suffering. In the middle section of his lament, the psalmist focuses on his physical and emotional turmoil. He is exhausted from the pain, and the stress of it all has brought him sleepless nights and reduced him to constant tears. He writes, I'm worn out from groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. But to top it all, it seems that some people were suggesting that his suffering was a sign of his guilt and that therefore God would not deliver him. And so in the last section, the psalmist speaks of his enemies. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Possibly these enemies, rather than being opponents, may be more like the friends of Job, who in their comforting actually undermined Job's confidence in his own righteousness and in the goodness and justice of God. These well-meaning enemies have caused the psalmist even greater sorrow. And he metaphorically tells them to clear off and leave him alone with God because God will hear and answer his prayers. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping he says. It even gives him some comfort to know that when God answers him, that those who have accused him so cruelly will have to eat humble pie. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and sorely troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame 
in a moment. You know, all of us will one day sit at the bed of somebody who is suffering. All of us will have to support a friend through a very difficult time. When we do, we will feel the weight of responsibility to bring comfort. We will feel the pressure to say something that will give hope. But we need to be careful. It is all too easy to get it wrong, even sincerely. We can patronize people or shake their confidence in God by trying too hard to put some positive spin on their pain. God is in control, we say. Or this is an opportunity for growth. Perhaps God's trying to get your attention about something. Or even you'll understand the purpose of this later. But the problem is that such responses can leave people with a sense of isolation. They're left with the feeling that their pain is belittled or not understood. And despite all that you've said, they can't escape the gnawing feeling that this suffering, no matter how deserved or not, is nevertheless evil and ought not to be. Sometimes, the best thing that we can do is simply to listen. The best solace we can offer to one another is not to explain away the pain, but to acknowledge its reality. The pastoral care scholar Henry Nguyen says that we must refuse to offer palliative care and not allow people to deny the reality of pain. He gives these words of advice. By remaining with people, but at the same time refusing to take the escape from pain they seek, we can restore their courage to voice their deepest fears and express the anguish, anguish that they find so threatening. Often the best way to do this is simply to be there, to listen, and to allow people to journey in their own time. And the last lesson I think we can learn from this psalm is this. We need to hold on to our resurrection hope. Of course, the one thing that's missing from this psalm is the hope of a restoration and resurrection. Unlike the psalmist, when the time that he wrote, we have the benefit of the New Testament that promises us that whatever happens, if we love Jesus Christ, our future is secure. For there we read that God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. One day, God will give us a new resurrection body that will be perfect in every way, knowing no pain or sorrow. One day, the very source of evil, the devil himself, will be defeated forever. And one day, we will live in peace and harmony with God and all who really love him. And through repentance and faith, we can all share in this hope. In the midst of our pain, we need to hold on to the rope of resurrection. It won't take the pain away or the seeming unfairness of it all. But we may just discover that God and his grace have become more real to us 
as we acknowledge that his will for us is not suffering and death, but abundant life lived in the light that shines out of darkness. In conclusion, Psalm 6 encourages us to be angry at the evil of suffering and to direct our anger towards God. Psalm 6 reminds us of our need to be careful when we come alongside our friends who are hurting. The best solace we can offer is not to try and explain the pain away, but to acknowledge its reality and allow people to journey. Psalm 6 forces us towards the New Testament hope of resurrection. Unlike the psalmist, we have the insight that God's ultimate will for us in Christ is not suffering and death, but resurrection life in the new heaven and in the new earth. We stand to sing our closing hymn. It's 150, The Church's One Foundation. <laughs>